The uh, Old Testament passage this morning is Genesis 29, one of the Old Testament passages. I will be reading the first 14 verses, reminding you as I do that this is God's own holy word. Then Jacob went up on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We're from Haran. He said, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, Yes, we know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well, and see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it's still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together, and a stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. As soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, the mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled a stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to the house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you're my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. And then our text this morning comes from the book of Judges, chapter 8. I'm going to begin reading with verse 13, and we'll read through verse 35. And again, as I do, I want to remind you this is God's own word. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Herod. And he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Ziba and Zalmana, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmana already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Succoth the lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Then he said to Ziba and Zalmana, Where are the men who you killed at Tabor? They answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Ziba and Zalmana said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as a man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmana, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of the camels. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, let, us, let me make a request of you. Every one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil. But they had golden earrings, because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested 
with 1,700 shekels of gold beside the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were rung the necks of the camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in the city in Ophrah, and all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest forty years in the days of Gideon. Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had seventy sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son. He called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Ophrah of the Abizrites. And as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Berith their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good he had done to Israel. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let us ask God's blessing on it. Lord, as we come now to your word, we pray that you would bless it. You'd bless my words that you've given me this week to prepare. And bless your people, Lord. And may we be reminded of your love we have sung of this morning and your grace and mercy that we have sung of. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm always nervous when I go to a church that's not my own because my people were always used to me preaching uh, quite long. Um, and so I'm, I always try to cut the sermons down before I come to a new church uh, where I preached, uh, haven't really preached regularly. But a few weeks ago, I was in Hammond, and um, it so happened that your pastor was present that, uh, that Sunday to preach. And he preached a wonderful, I'm going to tell you, it was a wonderful sermon. I, I, it was great, greatly blessed to me. But he did preach a long time. <laughs> So I feel very comfortable, unless he was being unusual that day, but uh, um, I, I'm not going to hold to that terribly long. Let me start by saying that one of the questions that is often asked is whether Shakespeare himself had anything to do with the translation of the King James Bible. From what I have researched on my own, most people would say no. But if that's true, I would like you to explain one thing to me. In the year 1611, when the King James Bible was published, William Shakespeare was 46 years old. If you turn it, I'm, I'm, you, you don't have to do this today, but if, if you turn in your Bible to Psalm 46 in the King James Version, and you count 46 words into Psalm 46, you find the word shake. If you go to the end of Psalm 46, disregard the Selah and count backwards 46 words, you come to the word spear. Shake, spear, 46. <laughs> now, I know you want to go to your phone right now and check it out, but please, it is correct. Just look it up after the service. What does that have to do with our text? Well, we're here because of the battle of Gideon against the Midianites. When I preached through Judges in Tucson, where I was uh, uh, filling in for a pastor on sabbatical, and I, I came to that battle that Gideon had with the Midianites, we had just previously, the Friday night before, one of the families had a Shakespeare party at their house, and we read through Henry V. And there was a couple of interesting things I noted that were parallels between that play and that battle of Agincourt and, and, um, and Gideon's battle. One was in both cases, 
Gideon and Henry, the night before the battle, both went down uh, and heard a soldier talking about the battle. Now, in Henry's case, he went to his own army, but in Gideon's case, he went to the opposing army. But they both went down the night before to get encouragement. And the other thing is the odds of both battles were overwhelmingly against both Gideon and Henry in that battle. Now, Henry's odds were only 4 to 1, and Gideon's were about 300 to 1, but they both won against very great odds. So it's a wonderful time. And, and, but today we're going beyond that battle, and I, I know most of you know the battle and, are, and understand it, and we're coming to the end of Gideon's life. And Gideon is one of those Bible characters that's kind of hard for us to get a handle on because despite an amazing beginning, he has such a terrible ending. And here, he's not alone. He joins a lot of different biblical characters. We could think of Solomon or Saul, or from the book of Judges, Samson. Like Solomon, we're told in this chapter that Gideon had many wives and at least one concubine. Like Samson, he was able by God's grace to perform deeds that seemingly is beyond the normal human being. Like Saul, he begins as a great leader of the army of Israel, but ends up going after false gods. I think of the words of the Apostle Paul to the Galatians, you did run well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Gideon's been doing pretty well up to our text. But now things take a sad downward turn. When I first preached this message, I consulted several commentaries thinking that maybe somebody could give me a better spin on the end of Gideon's life. But unfortunately, none of the commentators helped me in that regard. Well, let me give you a little background to the text so you know where we're at. Chapter 6 gives us the call of Gideon and his famous fleece, I'm sure you're aware of. Chapter 7 gives us the battle of the Midianites uh, with its conclusion. And then the beginning of chapter 8 gives us the confrontation with Ephraim because they were angry that Gideon hadn't called them out to the battle, but Gideon negotiates and gets out of that. And then in verse 4, chapter 8, he's back with his original army of 300 that he had with the Midianites, and he's pursuing the rest of the Midianites who have now escaped after the battle. He's particularly going after two Midianite kings by the name of Ziba and Zamana. And together they have a force of about 15,000 men, much larger than Gideon's army, but much less than the original Midianite army that Gideon had went after. Now, in doing this, there is division among the commentators as to whether or not what Gideon's doing here is the right thing to do. Some of the commentators say that Gideon is going beyond what God told him to do, and therefore what he's doing is wrong. Others think he's showing the wisdom of a godly leader who doesn't just do the minimum required, but goes beyond to finish the battle. So you have to choose, I'll let you choose, but before he actually meets with these Midianites, he has a couple of encounters with some other Israelites first. And he comes to ask help from people of two cities, Succoth and Penuel. And he's going to ask a very simple request that they will give him some bread for his men because they're very, very hungry. But both of these groups of people deny the request for food. And the reason is because they know there's still a great Midianite force out there. And they're afraid if it gets out that they had helped Gideon and his army, after they kill Gideon and his army, they'll come back and destroy them. Now, 
First of all, I want to say, I think these men were under covenant obligation to indeed give bread to Gideon and his men, because where the Bible commands us, we are to do that if our brothers are hungry, and they should do that. Paul tells us, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. If your enemy, but these are friends, these are brothers, these are covenant brothers, and yet they refuse it. And so, because of their refusal, Gideon then threatens both groups with doing something and telling what he's going to do with them when, when he's done with the battle. To the men of Succoth, he says, I'm going to tear your flesh with briars and thorns. To the men of Penuo, he says that uh, he will tear down their towers. not going to tear their flesh, but he will tear down their tower. If Penuel sounds familiar, you probably remember that's the place where Jacob wrestled with God or a man or an angel, depending upon which text you're reading at that time, and uh, I named it after uh, his experience there. And so we learned that in verse 10, that the, those of the Midianites who had been either killed by each other or killed by Gideon's men were about 120,000 men. Well, that's an amazing number. It shows how certainly God had won the battle for the Israelites, he had done this. And in verses 11 and 12, it seems that God is still with Gideon because they are able, with his 300 men, to again defeat the 15,000, even though the odds are not as bad as the original battle, they're still 50 to 1, which is still a pretty formidable set of odds. But there is one very ominous note that happens here in verse 12. In the original battle in 722, we read this, when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrades and against all his army. I want you to note that phrase, the Lord set every man's sword. In verse 12, it says, he, Gideon, threw all the army into a panic, not the Lord. Barry Webb says, the author himself doesn't attribute anything that happens in this phase of Gideon's life to God. And simply reading the text, it's easy to miss that, that God is really absent from this part of the text. But it's an ominous note that things are changing in the heart of Gideon. So let's look beginning with verse 13. In verses 13 through 17, we can see that Gideon is a man of his word. I, there was an old Johnny Cash song I had never heard. I heard a lot of Johnny Cash songs. I'd never heard this song for some reason. And when I was in Tucson, we were talking about Johnny Cash, and somebody told me about this song. I said, I've never heard this song. Are you sure it's a Johnny Cash song? He said, yeah, it is. So I looked it up, and uh, sure enough, it was. And it's actually a song about Jesus. And the name of the song, I think, or the first line is, There's a man going round taking names. And in our story, Gideon is the man going round, taking names. And he first captures the men of Succoth, and uh, he takes them and does what he says he was going to do. And uh, I heard a man years ago speaking, and he said that when he was a kid, um, his dad came home, and his dad said something that I think maybe most of our dads at one time said to us. His dad opened the car door, looked at whatever he was doing, and he said to him, you ask for it now. And he said, he looked at his dad and said, well, I changed my mind. 
Well, they had asked. Gideon says, you asked for it, and now you're going to get it. You taunted me. You said what was going to happen. Now I'm going to tell you what I was going to do. And so in the old days, people would talk about, parents would say, well, I took my son to the woodshed. So Gideon takes these men to the, to the some kind of shed where there's thorns and briars and, and tears their flesh in, in doing that and greatly punished them. It doesn't say that he kills them, but at least he greatly punishes them. And again, we say, well, you know, you reap what you sow, and they didn't want to help Gideon, and now they deserve all this. But at the very least, we could probably say Gideon isn't practicing the golden rule here, is he? Um, Nor does he really exhibit humility and forgiveness in doing this. Again, years ago, I heard a man in a sermon talking about He said, if most people, most Christians are asked, if you could live at any time other than this time in history, if you could have picked any one time to live, what would you pick? And most people respond to this the same way. They almost all say, I would like to be there when Jesus was walking the face of the earth, when he was doing miracles, when he was teaching, when you could touch his garment. I would like to be there. And the man said, I understand that, but he said, not me. He said, if I could live any time, I want to live in the time of the kings where you can grab your enemy by the beard, take your sword, and put your sword to him, and glorify God where you were doing it. <laughs> well, well, that's what Gideon's doing. And the same thing happens to the men of Penuel, but they seem to suffer a much worse, uh, worse fate as Gideon indeed seems to put them to death in this time. Now, I have heard, I've never been in combat myself, and probably some here have, um, but I have heard that being in combat really changes a person from those who've been in it. They've told me this. And I wonder, is that what happens to Gideon here? I, I don't know, but there is a change, and it's not a good change. And whether we want to justify Gideon for what he's doing here or not, we can certainly say he isn't doing the things that would heal to the unification of the nation. He's not trying to bring healing to the land. It doesn't appear. Many years ago, I was at some amusement park. It was either Valley Fair or Six Flags, one of those. And I saw a girl wearing a T-shirt, and I, I thought it was one of the best T-shirts I ever saw. And uh, it said, I was born. And then it said, wait, it gets worse. <laughs> and I thought, well, yeah, that can be life. And that's this story, because I'm going to say to you, wait, it gets worse. So in verses 18 through 21, we have the worst part. We have the confrontation between Gideon and the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmona. And again, to be fair to Gideon, these men had killed Gideon's brothers. And we could say that the Old Testament law of Lex Taliotis was in effect, which is eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and that Gideon had every right to do that, and, and he would be justified in doing that. But he does something very foolish. Instead of rising up and killing these men himself, he turns to his youngest son, Jether, and said, you rise up and kill them. Now, we don't know how old Jether is at this time. He's a fairly young man, and we're told that. He did have a sword, so he was there as part of the army, but it appears that he was young enough to not really want to do what his dad was telling them to do. And it seems like Gideon was just doing it to make these men humiliated by being killed by a very young man. So in what seems to be a final act of defiance, Zeba and Zalmunna taught Gideon and say, rise up yourself and kill us, for as a man is, so is his strength. Well, whatever they thought this taunt might accomplish, it did make Gideon do exactly what they asked for. 
And it certainly appears by all of this that the Gideon of chapter 6, afraid, hiding himself, threshing his wheat, it appears that he's now a certain, completely different person. So Gideon has acted in a very foolish way. But again, wait, it gets worse. Verse 22, because this Gideon is different than the Gideon of chapter 6, the people see in him a ruler that they think would be a good ruler, a good king for them, and they want him to rule over them. Again, we have to recognize what's absent from this account. That's something we often forget to do. We don't look at what's missing. We, we look what's there, which is good. We should look what's there. But we don't always look at what's missing in the account. What has there not been that we found earlier? There's been no worship of God we're told about. There's been no praise to God. The people have not gathered together in a worship service and given praise to God for the great victory that he's given them in defeating their enemies. Back in 715, when Gideon went down and heard the Midian soldier talking about uh, the battle the next day and the dream that he had, Gideon, what did he do? It says he immediately went back to his camp and what? Worshipped. Worshipped. That's the Gideon of chapter 7. But here we don't read anything of Gideon worshiping or anybody else worshiping and no, nobody giving praise. There ought to have been great rejoicing. Remember what the children of Israel did in Exodus chapter 15 after they had defeated Pharaoh's army. Well, they really hadn't. They hadn't done anything except cross the sea. But remember the great rejoicing after God had drowned all of Pharaoh's army and his chariots in the sea. And the people gathered together and sang, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider thrown into the sea. And they exalted God. And they called him their father. And they did all of those wonderful things. And that is what they should have done here, but there is no mention of anything like that happening. And in verse 22, they say, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Now God, you, Gideon. It would have been right for Gideon to say, All right, I, you know, God used me, but it was God. Obviously, I couldn't have done this. This is nothing I could have done. But he doesn't do that. So things are going very wrong. In verse 22, they basically ask Gideon, start a dynasty. We want you, and then we want, you know, Prince Charles to become King Charles, and the next one, and so on, and all of that. At verse 23, it seems, well, wait a minute, Gideon seems to do the right thing here. He actually refuses the request, and instead he replies to them that they should just allow the Lord to rule over them. Oh! Okay, things seem, they're coming back on track now. Gideon's doing the right thing. Gideon, way to go, man, you're doing it. And the offer of a king would have been a tempting offer to Gideon, I'm sure that that would have been the case. But then in verses 24 through 25, the pendulum swings back so quickly in a shocking fashion. And I have to say, it's really hard for me to understand what Gideon does here. There seems to be nothing in this account that leads us to what happens here. It's like if you're reading a novel sometimes, you know, and you're reading through it, all of a sudden you come to something that happens, you go, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's been no background laid for this. There's no reason this should ever happen. This character's not been portrayed in this way. It's not right. This is completely out of place. The author really goofed up here. Well, it almost seems like that. It seems like, wait a minute, what, 
What's going on here, Gideon? This, this doesn't seem like you to do this. He asked the men to give him all the golden earrings. Okay. And they agreed to do that, and they throw them on the ground, the cloak that's on the ground. We're told the amount of the earrings was 17,000 shekels. We don't know exactly how much that would be in today's currency, but estimates range over a million dollars for that. So what does Gideon do with it? He takes it and fashions it into an ephod, which would have been a priestly garment, but of course not if it's made of gold like this. And he basically erects an idol in what he does. And he puts it up in his own hometown, in a sense to make it a rival place of worship to where the tabernacle was to be later and where the Ark of the Covenant uh, and, and was and all of those things, and which would have been somewhere else. But again, we see that he's doing the wrong thing. Idolatry is coming Israel. So Gideon, who begins his career by getting rid of idolatry out of, out of Israel, now closes his career by bringing it back. Verse 28 says, the land does have rest for 40 years. Now many people defend Gideon in this action here, and they say, well, his heart was in the right place. He was, he was trying to restore true religion to Israel and what he was doing. The Geneva Bible has this comment, his intent was to show himself thankful for his victory by the restoring of religion, which, de- which deed, uh, because it was not according as God had commanded, turned to their, stru- their destruction. They're saying he tried to do the right thing by this deed, but it actually ends up turning to their destruction. I liken this a little bit to David when he wants to bring the ark back. And he's got a right heart. He he wants the right thing. And we know David is a man after God's own heart. And he wants to do it, but he just forgets he should have looked at the instruction book first. If he had, he would have known how he should have brought the ark back. But he didn't. What did he do? He copied the Philistines and how they took the ark. And everything went well for the Philistines. But everything didn't go so well for David when he tried to bring the ark back in that way. He ignored the law of God. And perhaps Gideon's heart is in the right place. But he's ignoring God's law in what he does. And it also can remind us as they take all of the golden earrings and fashion a golden idol. I'm sure several of your minds probably go to the episode of the golden calf. And so, verses 29 to 35, Gideon had turned down the offer of being a king. But there are two things we're going to come to here that indicate he still thinks of himself as a king. The first thing we see is that he has many wives, like many of the kings had in particular. Again, we probably think of Solomon. And of course, he didn't come near to Solomon's record, as far as we can tell, but he still had many wives. All of this was in disobedience to what God commanded in Deuteronomy 17, 17. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Well, Gideon's pretty much disobeyed all of that, although technically you could say he's not a king. And as much as we find polygamy abounding in the Old Testament, we also know it was never God's desire for a man to have several wives. 
The old radio preacher, uh, Dr. J. Vernon McGee, some of you may recognize that name, back in the 70s when I was driving a floral van and delivering flowers to, uh, to ladies, um, I would listen to Dr. McGee. He would come on the radio every day, but uh, he had a very distinctive voice. But uh, he said, God did not create several Eves for Adam. He created only one. God did not remove all of Adam's ribs. He only took out one rib. But let's note here the integrity of our scriptures, in particular as to what it records. Gideon was a great hero. He led an army against 300 to 1 odds. And uh, yet we come to this part, and isn't it interesting what the Bible does? It doesn't hide the faults of its heroes. Other books do that. They give us these great heroes, but they hide the faults of that hero. But scriptures tell us the truth, no matter what that truth leads us to see. Richard Rogers, the old Puritan writer, says, It teaches us that the faults and blemishes of God's servants are set before us in the scriptures as well as their virtues, in which respect the scriptures are unlike other human stories or writings, which through hatred or flattery obscure the truth. In verse 31, we're told he had at least one concubine, but the wording of the verse seems to indicate he had more than one. And here's the second thing, if you're wondering, well, he, he still hasn't admitted being a king. Okay, I might grant you that, except for he names his son Abimelech, which means my father is a king. Uh, so what does that tell you right there uh, about that? So I find that interesting. It's kind of like if I had a son and, and I named him, my father is a really great guy. You know, that, that would be great. I, I've had a name for years. I, maybe somebody here will do this for me. I've asked my children, they have steadfastly refused to do this, and my son uh, just had a, a, a new uh, baby here just a, a few weeks ago, and he didn't do it, um, but I said, name your son after two great biblical names, Noah and Lot, because then the name would be Noah Lot Kufus, and I thought that would just be a great name, but uh, well, that's bad, but so is my father is king. But the second problem here is the son that he names is the son of a concubine, so he is actually illegitimate, and he'd have to wait for 70 previous sons to die before he could become the king. But this guy Abimelech, he's pretty good too. He figures out a way to get rid of those 70 kings and be the next in line. We're told that the concubine lives in Shechem, which is going to play a big part in the story in the next chapter. But I need to end here, uh, either though both of these, uh, or this next chapter is also very interesting. But I want to make some applications to us this morning. Basically, we see in this story, and the one that follows in chapter 9, I'm not going into. We learn the truth in the Bible that people generally get the ruler that they deserve. Israel at this time deserved Gideon and later Abimelech. We didn't look at that story but, um, of Abimelech, but spoiler alert, it, it's not good. It's not good at all. And no matter how Abimelech actually becomes the ruler, it doesn't matter, because in the end, Paul tells the Romans, the powers that be are ordained of God. And because they are ordained by God, Paul exhorts us to pay all that's owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And sometimes that can be very difficult for us to do, can it? It's hard for us to honor some people in office because of maybe the decisions they make that we feel are terrible decisions, and it becomes hard for us to honor the person we 
oftentimes even as Christians end up making fun and sporting them and not giving them honor. We can certainly disagree with their politics, but we have to be careful to do what Paul tells us here. And as bad as we think our leaders are oftentimes, and oftentimes they're very bad, we have to remember they're really not worse than the leaders that were in Paul's day, in Christ's day. Herod, you're safer being, as the old saying said, you were safer being Herod's pig than Herod's son. Caesar, Pictured thing. And who's the one that Paul appeals to? I appeal to Caesar. Nero. Good. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Nero. Yeah, that's the one the Christian should be appealing to. It'd be hard to find a worse ruler. But Paul says, give honor. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.17, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And the emperor is Nero. What he writes. And that honoring should also go, if I might mention this as well, to social media as well. That We need to be careful of what we do. Another lesson I think we take away from the story of Gideon, sometimes the worst thing that can happen to us is success. We think failure is hard to deal with, but success is far harder. When you think about the biblical characters who had to deal with success, we don't see too many good results, do we? Solomon had loads of good success. Look what happened to him. Hezekiah is another biblical king who great things and great success, but look how his life ended. Samson is another one. I could mention others, but it just bears out what happens to us in real life. When I came into the OPC in 2005, I was able to bring a church with me that was, had been a charismatic independent church. And that church is now Covenant OPC in, in Hammond, Wisconsin, where Pastor Lems is the pastor. And I was able to bring that church into the OP. It's a church I, I had planted. And in those days, I, I, I would hear about, um, you know, all these church planters that were having such difficulty. And I was on the, the Presbytery Checks Committee that dealt with home missions. And there was these pastors that were just failing. And I thought, how can you fail? This is such an easy thing. You know, you just, you just, you just do it. You just go out and do the right things. Everything works out. And the church plan is successful. You know, like this church plan I had. What's wrong with you guys? Since that time, I have been in charge of three church plants, to which none have a OPC church in existence there today. And I realize I could give you a list of reasons why that's so, but the truth is they didn't happen. And I look at them as, as failures, and I know I shouldn't, nor should I look at the other as success. But I can tell you, failure has been very, very good for me. It's taught me some humility, which I'm sure you've been able to pick up on along the way here. Of course, I'm not, I'm not saying I've conquered pride. I certainly haven't. But it did help a little bit in that area anyway. Proverbs 38, 9 says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. What I really want to emphasize this morning for this last part of the message, the end of Gideon's life again, where the scriptures plainly tell us of his failings. Now, why does the scripture do that? I mean, they didn't, it didn't have to. 
Wouldn't it feel much better if all those stories of Solomon, Samson, Gideon, on and on, wouldn't it feel better if they all uh, ended really good? Well, the scripture, I think, does this for several reasons. Reasons. One is, I think it does it as a warning. A warning that to us, no matter how greatly God has used us, we have to be careful to recognize we can still fall. Scriptures are full of warnings of that, not only by examples, but by exhortations. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. God uses these warnings to protect and to shield the elect. But we must always, as Peter says, use all diligence to make our calling and election sure. And who would know that better than Peter, who said to the Lord that night, Though everyone else forsakes you and denies you, I will never do it. He would know. Some of the greatest heroes had the greatest failings. Peter, David, Gideon, Samson. A second reason, I think, that scripture records these failings is so as a church we might always work for the restoration of the fallen. I've often quoted this old saying about the church, but someone said, the church is the only group that kills its wounded. And I think sometimes we do that. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul gives us a listing of what he calls the works of the flesh, and he lists out 17 things that he calls those works, and talks about them, and they're horrible things. Sexual immorality, orgies, drunkenness, division. He goes on to say that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then, unfortunately, we have a chapter division, one of those terrible chapter divisions, that causes us to not connect that chapter with what just had been said. But in the beginning of chapter 6, verse 1, Paul says, Brothers, if a man is overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such a one, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. What fault? Well, all the faults he had just listed. I've just given you all these faults, he's saying. Now, if somebody could get caught up in that, but if they do, work towards their restoration. Restore this brother or sister. And I think sometimes in the church we're not as good at restoration as we are at discipline. And we need to be careful in that area. But the last reason I'm going to give you is the one I want to close with this morning. To do this, I have to do an, a little experiment with you, okay? And you have to be honest with me. You're not going to say it out loud, but I want you to think of something. And, and I, want, I want you to be honest with me and tell me the first thing that comes to your mind, okay? And don't, don't try to be spiritual here. Just, just try to come up with the first thing that comes to your mind. I want to give you a biblical name to which there's many stories. I want you to think of the first thing about this person. The name I'm going to mention is Lot. Okay, I wonder what came to you first. Did you think of the story about how Abraham went to him and said, here's all the land, choose what you want, and I'll take the rest. And Lot chose the best land instead of giving to his uncle who had blessed him in so many ways what he needed. Maybe you thought about the story how Lot first pitched his tent towards Sodom, and then he ended up living in Sodom 
and then became one of the rulers of Sodom who sat in the gates of the city. Or maybe you remember him sitting in Sodom and being taken captive, and Abraham had to go and rescue him. Or did you think about him when the angels came to visit and surrounded his house, and good old Lot said, hey, let me give you my daughters instead. Maybe you thought of that. Or did you think of him dwelling in Sodom in the midst of great wickedness? And the word of God came to him, the city he lived in was going to be destroyed, that he couldn't convince one person outside of his family to leave the city. And he couldn't even get his own family out. Or did you think of him at the end of his life, living in a cave with his two daughters, and getting drunk, and having relations with both of them, and they having given birth to two of the great enemies of Israel, the Ammonites and the Moabites. Wow, lots of bad things to think about with this guy's life, isn't there? Lots of those terrible things. But when God comes to mention Lot, in his last mention in the Bible, I wonder what adjectives God comes up with to describe Lot. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for has that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Did you hear God's adjectives for Lot? Righteous, righteous, righteous. And if you want to look at the next verse in Peter, you can add godly. Can you see how much more gracious God is than we are? This chapter in Gideon and Judges is not the last reference to Gideon. The last reference is Hebrews 11.32, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David and Samuel and the prophets. Listen to those names. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel. Think about those names. Oh, the things bad that we could say about those men. But when God comes to mention them, he mentions their faith. I don't think there's an, I don't, as far as I know, there's not a reference in the Bible to a man of God, a woman of God in the Old Testament, not a reference that is negative, even though we can think of negative things about all of them. But God doesn't mention them. God doesn't see us as we see ourselves. We'd be so grateful. The Bible says a living dog is better than a dead lion. We might be living dogs, but God can forgive us. I heard a story. I'm not... I'm not, I'm not uh, endorsing this church at all, okay? But it works for the story. There was a man, uh, one time he was talking to his friend who was, who was a Catholic, and he, he said, um, the man, the Catholic said, why don't you ever go to confession? The man says, I, there's nothing to that. He said, this, it doesn't do any good. He said, there's, it's just all a phony thing. He said, uh, and the guy said, well, no, it's not true. And he said, no, he said, I'll tell you what. He said, if you think there's something to it, he said, you, next time you go to confession, you, you ask the priest. I, there was a very, very major sin that I committed when I was young. 
You ask the priest what that sin is and see if he can tell you. A few weeks later, the guy ran into the friend again. He said, hey, did you do what I said? You asked that priest about what that sin was I committed? He said, yeah, yeah I asked him. He said, well, what did he say? He said, God said, I forgot. But that's what we learn from God. Is he can forget those things that have hindered us and that we look back on and say, oh, why? Why did I do all those terrible things? Why did I do? Why do I continue? But God is so much more gracious. And let us learn to accept the grace of God in our own life. And the grace of God for others. Yes, we're not lovers of sin. We're not promoters of sin. But we do need to be promoters of grace. Not grace that leads people to more sin, but grace that leads people out of sin. To restore and to bless. And if there's any here this morning that you're thinking is that you've done some terrible things, some awful things, please remember, God is a forgiving God. He is a pardoning God. There is no God like our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are full of grace and mercy. We thank you, Lord, that you love us even in our failings. Lord, we hate ourselves when we fail, but you continue to love us. Lord, help us, we pray, not to fail. But when we do, Lord, may we see your grace, your love, and your mercy, and know that you care for us deeply. May we never doubt that love of which we sang of earlier. May we never doubt the amazing grace we heard played for us a little while ago. Let us trust in you, Lord, the God of Gideon, the God of Lot, the God of Samson, the God of David. Lord, all of them had things to be terribly ashamed of, as we do, Lord. You are a pardoning God, and we praise you for it. And if there are those who've never, ever came the first time for pardon because they think they're too great a sinner, May they come today and find mercy at the cross. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.